I'm guessing all of you have a person that if you thought of yourself as living the good life, being in a good place, that you could have an audience with, you would think that you had arrived. Now, let's just imagine for a second that you weren't bound by like time and space and you could just choose whoever to meet with and you felt like if you had that meeting, it would just really reshape everything. So maybe you need to think through some categories. What if it was a a preacher? Maybe you would think to yourself, I'd like to meet with Charles Spurgeon. I know he's not around anymore, but man, I would love to talk to him and, and get to know him and see what it was like to sit under live preaching with Charles Spurgeon. I think that would change everything. I would learn some stuff. Or maybe you're thinking about a famous musician, and you're thinking, man, if I could just sit next to Garth Brooks for a second. See, some of y'all didn't ever see that coming. Charles Spurgeon, Garth Brooks, same room conversation. Stop judging me. You can have your own musician. I'm just getting the thought processes flowing. But imagine just for a second that you could meet anyone And you would just feel like, man, this is like my bucket list item. Well, for me, I had this bucket list item growing up of meeting Michael Jordan, of seeing him in person. And I used to watch him when I was young on TV. Never got to see him in person. We didn't really have a professional team near us. And so I watched all of this guy's games on TV. I mean, I'll never forget the fadeaway. I mean, he never missed the fadeaway. It was incredible seemed like he always won, always knew how to win. I would go out into my driveway and I would practice the fadeaway until I got it down to perfection, at least in my own imagination. And as I would do that, I would just think, man, what must it be like to be around this this man who's so incredible at basketball? And when I was in college, uh, he had retired, but he came back briefly and he was playing for the Wizards And one day I had all of these tests and all of these papers to write. And a friend of mine said, hey, my dad just got tickets to watch Jordan play. He's in Memphis. Would you like to go? Five minutes later, we were in the car and we were driving to Memphis three hours. We went to watch him play. And I remember we were like 10 seats away and I was sitting there just living out a dream of watching this man play. He was so much bigger in person. The, the fadeaway was still there. It might not have been his prime, but it was still poetry in motion. And, and though they lost, I just sat there and thought to myself, you can take me now. I have seen glory. Well, what about you? Who do you dream of spending time with? Well, you know, as we've been looking at the Beatitudes, Jesus, we've been talking about the way that he begins his public ministry of preaching with his vision of what it looks like to live a flourishing life. He says, this is what the good life looks like according to the kingdom of heaven. Here's how you know if you're in a a good place. It's if these things are true of you and in each one of those things that he has said are true of you come with a kind of promise. Well, this morning we come to this very fascinating beatitude where he tells us, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, as we see this, we just need to acknowledge on the face of it that from Jesus' perspective, 
the potential of being in the presence of God here is seen as a very good thing. In other words, it's meant to entice you to want to do the thing that just came before. It's supposed to give you encouragement to be one of those who is found to have a pure heart. If you have a pure heart, you will see God. Well, this morning as we look at this, what we find is, is that there is a paradox like there have been in the other Beatitudes in this. Notice, he says, if you want to see God in the future, then what that means is you you don't need to go grab a telescope and look up into the heavens and see if you can find God. He doesn't tell you you need to go find a DeLorean and set the date to an exact day so that you can fast forward to where God shows up. No, he tells the Jewish and Gentile crowd that are listening that they actually need, if they want to see God who created them, that transcendent, invisible God, they need to mine the depths of their hearts for purity. Fascinating, isn't it? If you want to see God, then we need to consider our hearts. Now, here's our big idea if you're looking for a handle for this message. It's this. Seek God and you will see God. Seek God and you will see God. First, happy are the pure in heart. Now, those in Jesus' day, they have understood the heart is the center of our mind, of our will, our emotions. The heart is really that part of you that makes you you. So this isn't according to Jesus and according to the New Testament, that kind of idea that, you know, the girl comes home with her boyfriend and she's like, well, he's, he's kind of mean. He doesn't take care of me, but he has a great heart, right? It's not, that's not what they're communicating. No, what, what's being said here is, is that, you know, you live out of your heart and your heart says something about who you are. See, Christians typically understand purity of heart in a couple of ways. And I think that we need to get a handle on that before we move forward. So what does it mean to pursue a purity of heart? What does it mean that God's people have a purity of heart? Well, it it speaks of an inner moral life, according to some. They, They say the focus here is on basically having a heart that grows in the way that you are thinking about reality in a godly way that really shapes the way that you desire what you desire based on what God says, not what you want apart from him. It is a a centering kind of reality morally. Purity of heart is first used in the Greek Old Testament in a very interesting place. It's in a story about Abraham in Genesis 18, where Abraham is speaking to a, a pagan king and he says, hey, why don't you just have my sister, Sarah, who's actually his wife, And he's doing it to save his neck. And so the king says, yeah, she's beautiful. I'll take her as one of my wives. And so he takes her. And then it's in the middle of the night in a dream that God shows up and he warns this pagan king. And he says, look, you you just got duped and and you were put in a bad place by Abraham because that's his wife. And if you mess with her, you're dead. That's my paraphrase. And in Genesis 25, the king responds to God and he says, in the integrity or purity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done that. 
In other words, uh, I have clean or pure hands and heart in what I have done. I, I was not acting out of bad or sinful mo- motives. This was not against you. It was not meant to be wrong. See, the irony is that the pagan king in this story looks so much purer than this pagan king. His inner moral life in that situation supersedes Abraham, who is the man of faith, the father of faith. And yet, Abraham was the man who believed God. And it was him who was counted by God as righteous. Now, a second way that purity is taken is is not just speaking of the moral inner nature of the heart, but actually the objective focus of the heart. See, purity of heart there is understood as a kind of single-eyed, wholehearted devotion to God. In fact, that word for purity is used all over Leviticus, describing the things that were consecrated, that were set forth for being used for the purposes of God, for his people and his place. You'll remember that the instruments were made of pure gold, and they were purified through washings, including the priests themselves. It is really giving a picture of covenant fidelity. Now, I think Matthew 6, 21 is helpful here. Jesus says in this same sermon, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, Jesus does not simply say in that verse that you treasure what you love, right? Just kind of a truism. Yes, I love it. I treasure it. That, that makes complete sense. You just kind of said the same thing again. No, he's saying that what you treasure reveals your inner, who your inner person really is. What do you treasure? That tells us something about what or who you love. So uh, the question that we really need to ask at the beginning is, is Jesus calling us, A, to look at our inner moral virtue, or B, a kind of single-eyed, wholehearted devotion to God? Well, I think that the answer is actually C, all of the above, with this clarification. See, morality is an issue of treasuring God from the heart. It's not like they're inseparable realities. The things go together. What you treasure will give shape to how you think, to how you feel, to to the emotions that get wrapped up and involved with the things that you love. Your emotions tell you about something uh, that you treasure. It tells you about your inner life. Now, this is where we just need to say from the outset, Christianity differs from culture. Right now, if you're looking at culture, there is a common kind of philosophy that is sort of an undercurrent in all of the the, the trouble that we see going on today. And and here it is. Uh, What they say is, is that the center of who you are and what matters most, and if you want to have a good life, then what you need is an absolute kind of freedom to understand yourself and not just understand who you are as though you've been made that way, but to express yourself as kind of an artist who is kind of saying, you know, I think I'm going to make my life this and that, and I value this and that. I'm going to decide who I am as a sexual being. I'm going to decide my own gender. I'm going to, I'm in control of everything. And if anybody in any way hinders that kind of freedom to display myself, then that's the only sin really that we have as a culture anymore. That's not what this is saying when God, when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. He's not saying just dig down deep and find out who you want to be and express yourself in the way that you want to express yourself. 
No, what, what he's saying is you need to look to your heart and you need to see it in light of nature and even more importantly in light of Scripture and even more importantly in light of Christ who is the climax of all of Scripture. Are you what God created you to be? Do you love in the way that God created you to love? Do you get emotional about things in right proportion? Do you get excited about sin? Or do you get excited about God's righteousness filling the earth? Do you think in the way that God has called you to think about the world that you live in? Or are you redefining truth based on your own whims and desires? Like this is very different than the world that we live in and that you see on display as you're watching the news and as you're talking to uh, those who are in charge of our educational system. No, we treasure God. <coughs> and treasuring God in the heart brings eternal meaning and significance and life. Now, I think there's another point that we just need to take note of here. I believe that as Jesus is saying that, he really has Psalm 24 in mind. Now, if you have your Bible, you can look there. But in, in Psalm 24, we find that it is calling Israel to have pure hearts, promising that they would see God. Now, I think this is important because I, I want us to, to understand what Jesus is doing here. You might be saying, oh, well, it seems like Jesus is all of a sudden saying, you know, oh, we need to have pure hearts. That's never been a thing before. But no, this fits into the trajectory of God's revelation to his people, even to Israel. So there in Psalm 24, David is asking a question. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Now that speaks of the temple where God's presence dwells. This is the, the house of God where God dwells with his people. And at the, 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 the apex of this house is the Holy of Holies where God's feet stood on his footstool as a reflection of his presence with his people. And he's, he's asking, who gets to go up and see God? And then David answers. He says, it's he who has, what? Clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Just a, a fun note here. I was discussing this uh, text with a friend, one of our elders, Andy, this week, and he just immediately said, what a thing that God would allow a scoundrel like Jacob and his kids come into his presence. Amen. Gives me hope. See, this provides, I think, some context, though, to what Jesus means when he says, happy are the pure in heart. Uh, for one, notice that God has always cared about his people's hearts as much as their hands. Do you see that? It's not a new thing for God to say, hey, this whole sort of uh, ritual thing that I created where you're like loving me outside but not inside, I was going to try that. It didn't work, obviously. So now we're going to go all the way to the heart. No. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, commenting on the law. It's there that 
God says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no other. I'm calling you to an exclusive relationship. I am the God who redeemed you. There is none like me for you. And what about that? Well, he says, and here's the deal. I as the one God, here's how you live life with me. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. How much does that leave for other stuff? Zero. He says, I am the, the focus and locus of your affections, of your devotion, of your worship. There is no room for other gods. See, if Israel were to have a Facebook status, there are 11 statuses. I don't know how you have 11 relationship statuses, but they do. But they missed one. And if they were to add one, I would say it should be this. I am in an exclusive covenant relationship with God. He's my God. There is no other. Now, here's what's fascinating, though. As you go throughout the Old Testament, God is not happy with a very certain kind of hypocrite. And I think that we need just to, to take notice of this because I think that there might be some influence in the way that this applies later in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, and then is the way that he's looking at some who are hypocrites in Matthew. See, the, the kind of hypocrites that God is calling out throughout the Old Testament that we see Jesus speaking to in the New Testament is an interesting one. It's the kind of hypocrite that offers sacrifices outwardly. Now, are you hearing me? They are actually doing outwardly, externally, the things that they are supposed to. You know what the problem is with, with God, with Jesus, as he reveals to us? That they're not doing it from the heart. Their hearts are far from him. Now, here's why I say this. It's because that kind of hypocrisy speaks of a, another kind of hypocrite than the one that we often are putting up as New Testament Christians that I hear all the time. A lot of times what we find is we're speaking of a kind of hypocrite that is way different. It's a hypocrite that actually we would say is someone who professes to love God but lives different on Monday morning, right? So they're, they're not consistent and so what we say is, is that what we really need is not somebody who starts obeying Jesus, but somebody who has a new love for Jesus. We're not really worried about how they live. That's not the kind of religion that Jesus or Moses or God himself is calling us to. See, just like in Psalm 24, he wants a people who love him and serve him with what? Clean hands and a pure heart. Does, does that make sense? We need clean hands and a pure heart. Kind of reminds me a little bit, these two different kinds of hypocrites that we think about. Reminds me a little bit of Mr. Clean. You know, one kind of hypocrite is like Mr. Clean whose head glistens. But he loves dirt. Right? He likes to get paid for the, the cleaning stuff. But boy, he dreams about dirt. He thinks about it. He wants it. There's not a love there. 
for real cleanliness. And the other, I guess, the kind of hypocrite that ultimately says he loves God but doesn't actually obey him reminds me of Mr. Clean with a mohawk or an afro. You know, he has that clean, slick back and his head's supposed to just sparkle in the sun, but it's covered. He covers up the thing that makes Mr. Clean clean, right? God's people are supposed to outwardly look holy, outwardly look pure, but that purity should go to the heart. And that's really the image I think that God is, and Jesus is trying to convey here. My people, they need to be clean to the heart. Jesus says much later in Matthew 5, 27 to 28, uh, he's speaking about the nature of this. And what we find is he says something very similar to, well, I'll get there in a second. Second, not only that, the law of the covenant moves from God to the heart. So remember, God's people had a law, and that law, it actually shows us the way that God is moving from God himself down to our outward actions to our very heart. Have you noticed that? So for instance, you'll remember the Ten Commandments that we began with, what? Like there's one God, right? Like you shall not worship any other gods, that's where we begin. And then eventually we get to how we behave with one another. And he says, you shall not commit adultery, that's an outward action. But does he stop there? No, he says, and by the way, as he gets to number nine, you shouldn't covet your husband's wife. Now, is coveting something that you do outwardly? I mean, maybe you can follow it and track it with the eyes. Hopefully not. But ultimately, that is a condition of the heart. And so even the Ten Commandments are drawing our attention to the importance and significance of the heart. That's why Matthew 5, 27 to 28, Jesus says, lusting after a woman is to commit adultery in your heart. Maybe that's an intensification, but it really seems to be saying what God has already said. In other words, the pure in heart, they treasure God above all things at the center of who they are. And it changes and shapes the way that they behave. Now, just a side note. I think this might be helpful. This isn't sufficient for helping with adultery, but if you have committed adultery, ultimately, it is likely not because your spouse was not enough. It's not because a woman lured you in, but because the God who redeemed you was not enough of a treasure for you. You haven't found the true treasure of Christ. See, God sees our hearts as clearly as our hands. That's the third thing that we see about our hearts here. See, when God told Samuel to choose a king in 1 Samuel 16, 7, do you remember what he told him about seeking this king? He says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. Too tall Saul. But the Lord looks on the heart. Ruddy David. Now, how overwhelming is that? When you really think about the nature of purity of heart. If we're being honest, we cannot escape the gaze of our creator and redeemer. There is nowhere to go. You can, you can hide your life from other friends and family and from, from non-Christians, but we can't hide our loves from the gaze of God. We can't hide how we're truly thinking about things in unbiblical categories from the gaze of God. He sees us. He always sees us. 
Hear me. God sees you when you lose sight of Him. He sees you. Now, this is humbling. I still remember in high school, I had a friend who I've told you about before who he said, hey, like we're going to go hang out and my mom says I have no curfew. And I said, that's great. He says, yeah. She says, I'm hanging out with you. I don't have to have a curfew. And I remember thinking to myself like, well, I think that's good. But part of me makes me feel like she think I'm like boring or something. And I realized that it was because she thought that I was a good kid. And I started to sort of reflect on that. I remember just driving down the road in this little town one day, on my way to like baseball or something. And, and all of a sudden this, this thought came to mind. Josh, like what's really sad is that I really believe that some people think that you're a good guy, but you know in your heart that there are desires that you have that are not godly, that if you had the opportunity, you probably would fall short and run into sin. And that just kind of broke me. Like, that's where I'm at. And there are times in life that I've taken the bait. But the thing that we need to know is, is that D, or fourth, our default heart setting is not clean. See, there's a reason that God's people had to continue to purify the instruments and people entering the service of God again and again in Israel. As Jeremiah warned Judah of being taken into captivity, he says in Jeremiah 17, 9, this is after God speaking again and again to Israel, performing many miracles. They continued to turn from him and then pray and call out and then get forgiven and then fall into sin again. And this happens again and again. And in Jeremiah 17, 9, is they're about to be taken off into exile, out of the land that was promised them. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, just think about that. I mean, that's, I'm warning us before we get to the good news to feel the weight of what's being said here. And, And I was talking to a guy just recently that I met, and we were just talking like we always talk, and he found out that I was a pastor. And so, you know, if, if you're a Christian and you talk to a pastor, what do you talk about? Jesus, yeah. I mean, like, that's an easy one, guys. Come on, thank you. Or the Bible. And, and so, you know, basically, we, we start talking about it. He said, you know, I just really struggle to read the Bible. That is not uncommon. It is not uncommon to have folks say that they struggle to read the Bible. It can be hard for us to be faithful in our devotions. Um, we could go more into that, but I just want to like highlight that. This is not an abnormal thing. If you're in that category, like you're not abnormal. It's not a good place to stay, but know that there's hope for you and there's hope for others. But as I was thinking through that, I started thinking about the nature of what's being called for here. He's not just calling for a purity of your hands, Right? So like, just start reading your Bible. He's actually saying, you should love what God loves and God's word reveals God himself in a way that is more spectacular than even creation reveals his invisible attributes. And so when you don't desire to read the word of God, it poses another problem. Not only do I not read my Bible, I don't want to read my Bible enough. 
Do you see that? And when you have problems, and, and you want to know, how should I honor God in this situation? The problem is not just if you sinned and didn't do what God wanted you to do. The problem is that you haven't been spending time in God's word so that you are thinking about the problem in biblical categories to honor him. Do you see that? There's an, an inward, inner man, inner woman that he's speaking to and saying, I'm worried about your hearts. You're broken on the inside. Your biggest problems aren't just external. They're not even just what you externally do. Your biggest problems, if you trace and, and follow the breadcrumbs back down the trail, it leads to your very heart, the center of who you are, the things you love, the way that you think about the things that you love, the way that you get emotional about the wrong things and not emotional as you should about the right things. Blessed and happy are the pure in heart. I'm sad because I know my heart left to itself and it's not pure. It's, it's not pure as it should be. And in Christ, still yet, I, I'm warring against sin. Some sins in, in my thought life that I struggled with when I was a kid. So if our manufacturer's default setting is that we are unclean, that our hearts are, as Jeremiah says, desperately unclean, then how can the impure become pure and have hope of seeing God? Does that make sense? See, what hope is there for those who don't seek God singly? Third, how and when are we purified? I mean, we've got a problem. Surely there's some kind of solution that Jesus has ushered in. I hope so. Well, see, Jesus is the new and greater King David who is ushering in the kingdom of heaven. He's just told us so. And it's possessed by those who are pure in heart. God promised that he would give us pristine new hearts in the Old Testament. You'll remember in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, Ezekiel is talking about this coming new and better covenant, better than the old covenant. And here's how he describes it. He says to his people, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone and from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, Jesus is God's greater king who announces that he has ushered in the new and better covenant that comes with new hearts. Christ, when we put our faith in him, he gives us new fleshy hearts, not hard hearts, hearts impenetrable to the revelation of God so that we might see some facts about God but not truly taste and see that they really are sweeter than honey. There's a way that the Spirit does that. He gives us the Holy Spirit and new hearts and he cleans the unclean. Anybody here grateful that we serve a God who cleans the unclean? Boy, that's me. Like I needed that cleansing. 
I feel it more this morning. I, I needed to be cleaned by God, and he has done that by Christ. But did you catch what Ezekiel connects being unclean with? Idolatry. Worshiping other gods. See, Jesus is the, the image of the invisible God. He is the focus of our worship. It is in him that we see the invisible God. But what we find is impurity of heart. Thanks, brother. I'm going to assume I need this if you gave it to me. But as we think about the nature of seeing God, we know that Jesus is, is the center of that for us, revealing God in clearer ways than what we have yet to see. There are three ways that we are cleaned, though, in Christ. First, Peter says, we receive this purity of heart by faith in Acts 15, 9. You'll remember in Acts 15, he's talking to Jews and Gentiles, and, uh, or to Jews about Gentiles, and he's telling them, like, having a conversation, what should we do about these Gentiles that are coming in? Um, how do we respond to them? Do we need to circumcise them? And, and, and that kind of thing. And it's in the midst of that that Peter says, we receive the purity of the heart that was called for by David and by Christ by faith. It is not an internal job. It is God outside coming in and changing us. We can actually be pure in Christ. That's the hope that Peter gives us. Uh, there he's speaking to those Jews about coming to faith. And this is what he says in Acts 15, 9. And he, being God, made no distinction between us and them, Jews and Gentiles, having cleansed or purified their hearts by faith. Now catch what this means. Both Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles who were considered unclean by the Jews, were purified in their hearts in the same way. By what? By faith. So you know how sin makes you feel when, when you sin sometimes? Have you ever had that feeling like, I need to go take a shower, I need special soap? Maybe you feel like you need to run and hide so that nobody can see you in your filth. See, faith in Christ purifies us to be God's people and for God's purposes. So uh, let me just say this morning, if you're a non-Christian and you're visiting us, you might feel like you are sitting in a room full of Mr. and Miss Cleans. Maybe it looks like, or you're thinking and imagining to yourself, everybody's got their stuff together. I mean, maybe not him or her, but like most of them have their stuff together. I don't know if I belong here. Well, I want you to know that the message of the gospel is that there is none that come in clean. And all of us are in process of being purified by the power of the Holy Spirit and sanctification. None of us were less needy of God doing this. And there is no other way than faith in Jesus Christ. But this is available to you. There, there's no dirtiness that you're in that Jesus cannot wash you and make you clean and make you able to come into the presence of God. That means that you can have a pure heart charged to your account if you put your faith in Christ Jesus who lived a life with clean hands and a clean heart all of his days before taking the cross for each of us that he might sprinkle us clean. He was raised from the dead by faith so that you can have credit for that pure heart and the Holy Spirit that will lead you to become more and more pure until he ultimately makes you pure when Christ returns. Now, there's also a second aspirational sense of purification for Christians. You know, there's an actual sense. We are positionally clean, but there is something else going on here. We are being called to a greater purity of heart, I believe. So you should seek purity of heart more and more 
through the sanctification of your own heart. For instance, John, speaking to a church of Christians, tells them in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like, wait a minute, I thought we were cleaned. You were? And, and then you, you fell into sin or you sinned or you, you're sinning in your thought life and, and you need to confess that. He, he doesn't say, catch this, you're still clean, don't worry about it, right? Like, how many of us have done that? Like, I'm gonna do this, I've been made clean, I know it's unclean, but I think the clean was good enough forever and I'm good. It's not the spiritual life. It's, I've been cleaned. I know I've got a long way to go to what I aspire to and what I've been promised and what is already mine by faith. John doesn't say sins are no big deal because we are clean by faith. He says that part of killing that sin is looking for it, right? Looking for it dead in the face. It's kind of like spelunking of the soul, right? You know what spelunking is, where you go down in a cave and you're looking at these different crevices and sometimes you go somewhere you shouldn't and you get stuck or whatever, but point is, not experience, but like when you're, you're going down in the depths of the crevices of your soul and you find things, motives that you didn't know were there, uh, ways that you want things that you know you shouldn't want, the, 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 the process that we are given, I believe, is not just pretend that it's not there. Just kind of fake it until you make it. It's actually to expose it and kill it. We name it. What's a particular sin or motive that's going on here? Is it really sin? And if so, what? What, what does God say about this in his word? What has he revealed about the nature of my thought life? Showing that scripture speaks to it. And then trusting the just God who both forgives the guilty and cleanses the filthy will send us back to be used by him. Now, let me just encourage you, um, if you get real serious about this, like working on your heart um, or somebody's helping you do that, <laughs> like a, a spouse or a friend who says you got issues, let me just say this, like go down and deal and pray and seek God's face and then get out of there. Like don't get, give way to despair to think that this is so bad, there is no hope anymore. There is always hope in Christ. But don't miss this. It's possible to pass through this life with a good job, obeying God on the outside, but having a heart that is far from him. See, confessing that the world is as God says it is in, this, in his word is the heartbeat of Christianity. Now here's a warning. Once again, when you go spelunking in your heart, looking in never before considered crevices, Make sure you don't get trapped in despair, right? Get out, seek Christ, think much on him. Now, when you chase down your motives behind why you screamed at your wife or you spoke in an arrogant man-centered way or you hit your brother on the head, talk to your heart about what's going on and if you still can't understand why you're acting the way you are, seek help, seek a counselor, another brother and sister in Christ you trust. And pray for God's help to understand your heart. And when you sense that happening, get out of, uh, out of your heart, if you're starting to feel despair, and meditate on who Christ is and what it means for you. That should make Christ sweeter to gaze on with the eyes of faith. But third, this purification, it anticipates a greater day when we shall be given pure clothes by God. Revelation 19.8 speaks of this. 
It speaks of a day when we will be given pure clothes by God to be in his presence. Hebrews says that we, we seek holiness in this life without which none will see God. But there's a fourth thing that we, we see here. That's the final thing, and it's the promise. Happy are the pure in heart. Why? Because, here's the ground, they shall see God. Now, this is what is commonly referred to as the beatific vision. It is a, an end times eschatological reality where we are promised, as one of the promises to God's people, that we shall actually behold him face to face. Now, you can understand why this is somewhat amazing. First, because of the nature of God. I mean, we opened the service today singing immortal, invisible, God only wise. So what does God look like? He's invisible. You can think about that at lunch today. But John 1.18 says no one has ever seen God, the only God. Now you'll remember that in the Old Testament we have prophets, great prophets like Moses and Elijah, who we are told saw God, but, but they tended to see God's hind parts because Moses clarifies in Exodus 33, 20, you cannot see, God says, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Now here's the other problem, not just his nature, but the nature of what happens when you see God. I mean, that does not sound like a noble pers- uh, sort of prospect that should encourage me. You're going to get to see God, but you remember what it said in Exodus 33, you cannot see God and live. Does that excite you? So what's going on here? These verses might leave you thinking and asking, can I see the invisible God? And not only can I see him because he's invisible, but second, do I want to? Well, both the temple where God met with his people and the mountain where God met with Moses, he warned, you'll remember he warned everyone to stay back. But Jesus seems to ground the call to purity of heart in this promise that we shall see God. And doesn't it sound like a really good thing, right? Like I'm gonna send you on this inexhaustible quest of purity of heart, but catch this, it's worth it because you, see, you get to see God. That's the way it sounds to me. Well, let me just close with four quick points on this. Seeing God. First, God reveals himself through certain media even now. I remember we were in a class recently and uh, one of our, our doctors, Dr. Toby, started talking about this, got me all excited about God. But what you'll find as you read through discussions about the nature of how we see God, how he reveals himself now, is there's this constant discussion about the way that we see God right now through media. You know, I, I saw Jordan through a television screen. He looked way bigger in person. Right now, we view God through certain media. There's general revelation about God that comes through creation, showing us the invisible attributes of God, like his wisdom and power. But we have an even better media through the scriptures. It gives us a clear vision of who God is and what he is like. If you are just left with general revelation through creation, it gives us just enough to know enough to be guilty and culpable for sin, but it doesn't tell us about our Redeemer. Scriptures do that. It's the scriptures that point to Jesus as the climax of God's revelation to us. I love that beautiful introduction to Hebrews 1. 
where the pastor says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what the invisible God looks like? Look to Jesus. These are things even a natural man can see apart from believing. He can see the facts about God. He can see the facts about God in creation, facts about God in the scriptures. But they can't make proper sense of them without the help of the Holy Spirit, without a new heart. So in Mark 9, 5, uh, the transfiguration happens, and I think this is a good picture of it. You'll remember that Jesus is going to give a vision of his glory at the transfiguration to Peter. Peter has not yet received the Holy Spirit. Peter still looks numbheaded all over the place. And so Jesus reveals his glory to him in a way that eclipses even Elijah and Moses, who are also there. And what is Peter's response when he sees glory like no glory has ever happened in all of creation? What does Peter say? Does he fall down and sing? Does he, does he, does he just sit there prostrate before God, worshiping him? No, he says, hey, let's make a tent for all three of you guys. Did you not see the glory of Jesus? Like he does not have the helper. He does not have the Holy Spirit. He is not able to make sense of the clear realities that are before him. It takes a miracle of God to see that. See, Peter sees more glory in that moment than Moses, and he has no category for it. He needed the Spirit. But how different Peter looks in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit descends. Is he like, hey guys, y'all want to build tents? No, he's like, let me tell you about who Jesus is. He is the one whom Psalm 110 spoke of. He is the one who is ushering in the promises of Joel in 2.23 to 20, uh, to, to uh, what was it, 28 to 32. Like he is the one, he is fulfilling all that has been promised. Do you see what's going, does that sound like let's build a tent? Why? Because second, we see God through the eyes of faith in Christ now. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith and not by sight in this moment. We see through a glass dimly, not with the clarity that awaits us. We know what? In part, not in full, it's coming. See, when we put our faith in Christ, we have eyes for Jesus as the one mediator between God and man. When we trust the voice of God as mediated through Christ, as authoritative and revealing God to us through the scriptures, we see more of God than the natural man can see. And this gives us reason to rejoice always, no matter what the external circumstances. That is the logic of heaven. We have seen God partially, but there is more that is to come. See, we see more of God than natural man can see as believers. We see and understand God's world from God's voice. Third, seeing God transforms us. This is one reason we're, we're looking forward to it. When we see God, we know in the future that that is going to transform us, and it is transforming us even now. After talking about the superior revelation that we have in Christ, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 
2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with veil, unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. You see that? Gazing at Christ? Is it, a, is it just like a, that is... That is so good. I'm an audience for this. This should not affect or impact me in any way. No, as I am looking as an audience participant, I then participate in what Jesus is doing, and he is changing and transforming me one degree of glory to the next. I am being transformed more into the image of Christ, not what I think I should be untethered from who God is, but who God made me to be in Christ. See, God uses the ordinary means of grace to bring about this transformation for his people. He uses things like serving in a local church. He, he uses things like praying, studying the scriptures, listening to sermons to help us to gaze with the ear, the spiritual eye of faith at God and be changed, to supernaturally transform us more and more. Now, Here's, I think, what Jesus would tell us. You become what you worship. What you look at, what you seek, is what you find in yourself. But finally, we shall see God. The reason that we, we, we want to think about this, the ground. Now, I believe this text at least points in this image to when faith will give way to new sight and the new heavens and the new earth. I believe he, he's thinking about that beatific vision that we long for. Now, I spent the last couple of weeks reading all kinds of reformers on the beatific vision. Uh, I read some stuff by a guy named Stephen J. Doobie, pretty good writer, and some others. And I wanted just to, to highlight a few points of uh, how people look at this beatific vision, just to bring some, some clarity. And you don't have to choose one of these, but I'm just sort of laying out what this means to some. Many of those reformers and others that I've been reading, they focus on how the immaterial part of you will see God. Are, are you hearing me? So like, you are a soul and a body. I'm not gonna get in the fight about if like there's a spirit, I'm bipartite, but you're a soul and a body. And here, what they seem to be focusing on is the way that your soul, not your body, but your soul, when you come into the presence of God, shall see him. So we believe that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, and I believe that when that happens, when you die, before Jesus comes back, there is a sense in, in which there's an intermediate state where you don't have a, a body and yet you behold Christ. Now, just think about this. If you don't have a body, then how are you looking with physical eyes? Does that, does that make sense? So it seems that what they are saying is that this is an intellectual kind of uh, awakening or vision to where you see the Lord, you see God in a way that you could never see with your physical eyes. They don't have physical eyes, yet they see and communicate those who are in the intermediate state as they are awaiting the return of Christ and ultimately living in the presence of our triune God. Those who are waiting on him, they see seeing God in a beatific vision, even now as an intellectual illumination. It's not dependent on your physical eyes or body. Now, we will no longer need, they say, when we get to heaven, 
media to perceive God. We will have a direct apprehension of God. But to this point, it's been coming to us through media, but the glory of the beatific vision, which so many authors are like, let me just pause and say, we're stepping on the edge of mystery here with what's about to come. But we shall fully, in a unique way that is unparalleled from any experience in this broken and fallen world, see God. Now, as you look through it, I love what Charles Hodge had to say about this vision of God. And he says this, it's not only about the object of what we see, but in in addition, there's something in us that has changed. And he says this vision consists in the indefinite enlargement of our faculties and the constant increase in knowledge and the useful exercise of all their powers. We're going to feel like superhumans beholding God in a way that we were not yet fit to behold Him. So catch this. God, we are seeing Him with greater clarity and more immediate precision than ever before. But not only that, we are transformed so that we are able to actually receive it in a way unlike anything that we've experienced before. Anybody long for that? Give me that. He says we will grow. We will grow in things like perfected love, happiness, holiness, fellowship, and goodness. And we will see these things in ever-increasing measure in God. Now, there's a second way that some people add to this clarity of what this vision is. Some simply say that, uh, catch this, it's not just that we see him intellectually, but we actually do see God, the triune God, with our actual new eyeballs in the new heavens and new earth, right? We're given new bodies, 1 Corinthians 15, and there is a physical dimension to that. And I'm guessing that you don't have to use glasses to see God anymore or contacts. I'm looking forward to that day. But I think John Owen is finally also helpful here. He doesn't choose between just the intellectual or the physical. John Owen offers his third opinion or option that the beatific vision is a continual contemplation of the glory of the person of Christ. And for you theological nerds, he says, we are gazing at the hypostatical union of Christ being fully God and fully man. We are seeing God in all of his glory. So that we see God with physical and spiritual eyes simultaneously. Now you might be thinking, what is it? Like, I'm not asking you to choose today. But do we see God with physical or spiritual eyes? And is Christ central? I believe we will see the triune God and that Christ will be right in the center of that. Revelation 22 tells us in the new heavens and new earth, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servant will worship him. And in verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We shall see the Father and the Lamb, the Holy Spirit. They shall be visible before us and whatever that means in the new heavens and the new earth. Now think about this. A day is coming when we will no longer need sun or moon to see because God himself will be our light. We shall see God without sin. Sin challenging our faith at every point. And some of you will say, 
I've had a sin that has never let me go. And on that day, for the first time, I will gaze at God unhindered. We will no longer be hung up on guilt or sinful desires. Not only that, we will have a new mind unaffected by the fall with new desires and affections that are not merely not fallen, but extended, expanded so that we can take more of God in. And though we are finite, our ability to perceive God will be greater and will grow. And God is infinite. We will never come to an end of growing in the joy of beholding him. We will no longer see God through media, but will apprehend apprehend him directly and fully in ways that it's hard for even the doctors of theology to comprehend. Now, two quick things as we close. First, Jesus promising of seeing God, it only makes sense to those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit and seek to love God with all that is in them with a single eye of devotion. That desire to see God comes from God. It is him showing you how glorious he is. It is a gift for God to allow you to behold even a glimpse of the glory of who he is. I think that means that if you want to see God, that you ought to seek to obey what you know of him so that he might transform you more and more. And catch this, are you listening to me? Obedience, not a bad thing. Obedience and submission to revelation, think about it this way. Greater ability to see God until we see God. You're not in a good place if you don't have a pure heart that weeps over sin. If you coddle sin or justify it or hide it or delight in sin or avoid living in community with people who value seeing God and uh, being careful about seeking others to speak into your life, if you don't revere the preaching of the word of God, not in a good place. And if that's you, confess it and trust that God will clean you. But second, seeing God isn't good for everyone. There's coming a day when, when we will see God, we will come before God. And if we have not been cleaned in Christ by faith, then we are unclean. And Revelation tells us in 21, 27, nothing unclean will enter it, the new heavens and the new earth, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Catch this. There is one appointment that your life ought to be fixated on, seeing God. Like, it's cool to meet Michael Jordan, or at least watch him. I'm sure it'd be cool to meet Garth Brooks. That's not your thing. Choose your person. But there is no one that we should be thinking about meeting with more than coming before God face to face. Are you ready for that day? Have you put your faith in Christ? If that's not you, don't leave without putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the day that should change every day until then. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you and we praise you. We praise you that... You want us to be happy and to flourish. That you want us to be in your presence. That you will let us who are in Christ see you face to face. And that there is a joy that awaits us that is unlike anything that this broken world has to offer. So Father, as we go from here, I pray for those in Christ. Father, I hope that they have had in them stirred up a greater longing and hunger to see you than ever before. Lord, let that go with us and change us. And for those who do not know you, who do not desire to seek your face, Father, I pray that you would give them a glimpse of the greatness of who you are in Christ. Save them, we pray. Amen.